from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, oh, I guess we don't just start, do we? What? We have we have to be people first. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, the people want to hear our um, our witty banter and our delightful personal stories. That's what so they love. hit me, quick witty banter. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> she <all> froze, <laughs> my friends, listeners. <laughs> she froze. <laughs> it was, I choked. It was a great visual gag. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm sure I looked very scared. Oh, it was good. And then, it was good. <laughs> we got to get this show on video. I know, right? It's been Look discussed. At my face. Um. All right. Well, how about uh, delightful personal stories then? Um. It's tough. It's, uh, the, I mean, the only one I have is that Atlanta is being sold to developers piece by piece. Yeah. So that everything we love about it will soon be gone. Yeah. And replaced yeah. with delightful, hilarious. Juice. So fun! What what an uh, anecdote! I love it. Hilarious. <laughs> uh, I'm trying. I mean, I'm really trying to think of something. I don't know. I know it's been a it's been a um, downer day. I was I had a, I had a hilarious story. 
I was on the phone with customer service for my cell phone provider um, for, I don't know, four hours last night and six hours today. Hilarious. That was a good time. A rip-roaring <laughs> treat for the whole family. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and leave them I unnamed. I had but my... they are all-time toot heads. I can say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I had my first therapy appointment ever. Hey, that's another, exciting. Another exciting, thrilling, fun time for everyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look, it's good. It's been a hard week, all right? All right. <laughs> Dealing with business things and How about mental that? health. How about now, now that the walls are down, I can see that screaming goat you got me for Christmas. Hey, true. Go ahead, grab it. <laughs> Did it come through? Uh, I don't know if it didn't. I don't know if anybody saw <laughs> Thor Love and Thunder, but it's basically that same thing. But this toy came out long before that movie. That's right. Uh, because the joke in that movie was like nine years old. So true. <laughs> Extremely old. Um, but yeah, you loved that. That shit always made you laugh. I love so a I got you goat. one so you could scream. Yeah. You should have had it today when you were on the phone with all time toot heads. Oh, that's right. I should you have. You could have really <laughs> let your feelings out. <laughs> could have. Oh, we had so much fun in our last episode. We were talking about those yes. Reddit breakups. Oh, my God. And we didn't even get to the Reddit marriage proposals uh-huh. or the Reddit sex stories, which will end up in an episode later I'm for sure. sure we will one day. But we did mention to y'all that we were. Doing that episode because we were deep in research for this episode, which I should say these episodes. <laughs> yes, I got I fell in love with these folks. I love so that. you know how it happens. It really to does. Us sometimes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ridiculous romances are really with us and our subjects. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. But I really fell in love with them and I got so fascinated in the history because it's theater history. So, of course special place in my soul right but um but they're just so amazing and kind of forgotten today so and they deserve to be known about i think definitely yeah i just we got real into it (laughs) y'all might not know this about us because we hide it pretty well but we are uh of the theater persuasion in our backgrounds hello i'm a thespian (laughs) acting acting and so yeah so this story about vaudeville the early days of theater mm-hmm. and uh and some theater diversity right more exciting mm-hmm. also something we here in atlanta are fortunate to get a, a decent dose of although uh the tide's been turning more in that direction fortunately yeah think, hopefully nationwide yeah, yeah hopefully i would say these performers kind of set that tone yeah early on in the turn of the turn of i guess i have to say the turn of the 20th century right. now we turned a whole other century since then <laughs> <laughs> so but no at the turn of the 20th century no vaudeville act was as popular or sought after as the black vaudeville troupe of williams and walker Bert Williams, who is still recognized as one of the greatest black comedians of all time, and George Walker, who is an equally talented performer and very savvy businessman, they put together their own vaudeville troupe in the 1890s. But when George married Aida Overton and she joined the troupe, the sky became the limit for these guys. Yes. With her choreography, their elaborate sets and costumes, and their determination to showcase black people in a less stereotypical way, they took vaudeville by storm, and then Broadway, and then the world. 
So let's learn more about these incredible theater legends. All right, let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So George Walker was born in Kansas in 1872 or 1873, and he started his performing career early. He toured around with medicine and minstrel shows as a child. Now, minstrel shows had been one of the most popular comedic entertainments since 1848 because northern white people were really curious about what life was like in slavery. And who better to explain it to them than white men? Wow. Who really understood. So, yeah, white guys would put on blackface. They would paint on very wide red lips and they would wear white gloves and they would imitate the songs and dances of Southern black people. Imitate, I think, is a stretch, right? Imitate is a little. (laughs) Uh, Exaggerate. Yeah. Just really do badly, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do poorly. Um, According to a New Yorker article by Claudia Roth Pierpont called Behind the Mask, the minstrel show became, quote, the nation's first homegrown entertainment craze, which I had never I never knew that minstrel shows were like our first American made entertainment. Oh, well, that just I guess that makes sense. (laughs) I know. I know. Sadly, it does. Yeah. But I guess we did import a lot of our entertainment from from Europe until. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I did not know that. America, you know, love it, has a tendency to say, I'm going to put my own stamp on this thing. And then that stamp is (laughs) super racist. (laughs) Well, that's it's what's what's extra crazy to me is that right now, right here, right here, the very first homegrown American entertainment thing. Right. Had its roots in slavery. So it's very Mm. odd to me. That, you know, people who don't like critical race theory are like, we don't need to learn about slavery. And it's like, actually, it's like literally part of every American story. You can't leave it out because it's it left an indelible stamp on so much of American life. It's just anyway. So minstrel shows uh, were first about kind of introducing, I guess, slavery life and and Southern black people's lifestyles to northern white people. But they quickly devolved into mockeries, of course, in support of slavery. And Mm. then later after the Civil War, in support of Jim Crow segregation laws. Okay. So that's when they kind of like, I think, I guess at first, at least for a little while, very short period of time, they were sincere. Like, this is this is what (laughs) they look like down there. What they're doing. We want to share their like way of life with you. Right. And it quickly became like, look at these idiots kind of. Wow. Okay. Vibes. Which almost is like exposing what was already underneath it anyway Easy, kind of yeah, in a way it's yeah. like oh yeah sure they were sincere about it i'm sure they were very earnest uh-huh. and honest yeah with it uh, yeah and i'm sure uh, uh, no and, and then it just became like actually we're really just being racist let's just go ahead and be upfront about it <laughs> why lie uh-huh <laughs> now actually jim crow segregation laws were named after a minstrel character um, oh. Because black people were depicted as either the Jim Crow, which was a dim-witted, lazy country buffoon okay. type, or the Jim Dandy, or as it was also called, the Zip Coon character. Oh, no. Um, which was a smooth-talking, urban, high-class type. 
Right. And obviously, the word coon is a slur. It was a slur in its own time. It is a slur today. Right. So not a word to like add to our vocabularies or anything like that. Usually, we don't say that kind of stuff if it's not historically important Relevant, to yeah, the story. Yeah. In this case, it is. So we did preserve that name sadly, right. uh, in this story. That's so interesting. I really thought that Jim Crow was a guy that I that public education failed to teach me about, but he mm. was actually a character that public education failed to teach me about. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Either way, public education failed you. What? <laughs> so you can still be mad. Once. That's it. That's the only time Just public the one education time, exactly. <laughs> Just the one time. Now, in minstrel shows, even black performers wore blackface because oh. of how much white audiences just hated to see black people on stage. Oh, like actual my God. Black people Are you serious? Stage. Not kidding. They would put on black cork, uh, burnt cork makeup and be like, look, I'm here I am. <laughs> white people? What is wrong with us? I do laugh sometimes. Like, I'm just like, white people are so sensitive. I, I mean, you see it today, too, but it's just it it's really laughable. Is. It really is yeah. laughable. Yeah. Oh, I can't handle it. I shouldn't do the Southern accent because, I mean, this wasn't even exclusively Southern. We're talking about New York, Boston, D.C., Chicago. I can't handle it. (laughs) Hey, forget about it. I can't forget about it. Somebody (laughs) got to do something different because it's hurting my eyes. Oh, my God. These losers. Insane. Now, by the 1890s, minstrel shows were being elbowed out by vaudeville variety shows, kind of a new form of entertainment. But the blackface and the minstrel stereotypical characters were still incredibly popular. So when the charming and outspoken George Walker met the reserved, talented musician and comic actor Burt Williams in San Francisco in 1893, they decided they would team up and create a good vaudeville act that would get them out of the minstrel circuit for good. Because they were done with all that shit. Awesome. Now, Burt Williams was a year younger than George. He was born in the Bahamas, but he immigrated with his parents at 11 years old to Florida, and then they moved to California. Now, first, he wanted to become an engineer, but he couldn't afford to go to Stanford University, so he became a singing waiter at hotels in San Francisco. Now, originally, when Bert and George got together, they just played the expectations. Like, Bert Williams, since he had lighter skin, he would play the straight man of the act, and he would act opposite George Walker's dark-skinned, bumbling, oaf-type character. Because, uh, again, it's just, oh, this must be what white people want to see. Yeah. Bert uh, was the dandy. Walker was the the Jim Crow. Right. But then they realized, uh, wouldn't this be a lot funnier if we switched? Mm-hmm. Which is brilliant comedy, oh, quite God. frankly. So George Walker, who was more dark-skinned than Bert, would perform not in blackface, He became the well-dressed, strutting dandy character, and he would spend all the money that he borrowed or tricked away from Burt Williams' slow, countrified, simpleton character. And Burt did perform in blackface to darken his light skin. Burt Williams, in fact, once said of his stage character, quote, even if it rained soup, he would be found with a fork in his hand and no spoon in sight. (laughs) I love it. Just an unlucky, you know, Uh (laughs) kind of guy. Now, Camille Forbes, in her book, Introducing Burt Williams, she points out that they suppressed the worst quality of the stereotypes they portrayed. They chose instead to lean into the comedy of opposites. Mm -hmm. So they had the wily schemer versus the innocent dupe. Yeah, it's like an odd couple kind of classic. Right. Classic setup. Yeah. 
Now, Forbes writes that usually Bert's character would triumph in the end through, quote, rare but incisive manipulation, revealing his surprising awareness of the social order, despite his recognized identity as a simpleton. At the time, white people who performed in blackface build themselves as the C word mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. So Walker and Williams decided to call themselves the two real coons. And that was to distinguish themselves, even though they knew it was a slur and they both hated it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they were like, but we're the real ones. Right. You know, ba- basically. Yeah. Now, Camille Forbes explains this. She said, quote, black entertainers success depended on their ability to satisfy white audiences desire for authentic performances of blackness. <laughs> Bert and George's self-description was a recognizable response to that demand. I just love that white people are like, I want an authentic portrayal of blackness. Right. But only white people can do it. And yeah. only white men. Also, I don't want to see a lady. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, right. OK, how authentic can it possibly be? That's like that's like me being like, I only eat authentic Italian food at good old Italian <laughs> restaurants like the Olive Garden. When you're here, your family. you're famiglia. <laughs> famiglia. <laughs> Oh, my God. Jeez. But I mean, you know, that's it's also that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see enslaved yeah. people and segregated people yep. portrayed as being like happy and fine with it. And they're dumb and they don't care. And it's fine. And that's the pr- proper way of things. Yeah. And when you showed them the reality, they said, no, 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 that's oh, yeah. not real. I've seen it before. I've seen shows. Oh, yeah. I know how they're actually happy. Mm hmm. You they're know? singing. Yeah. You know, which did happen in slavery because they would sing. And people would see they're singing, so they must be happy uh-huh. out there. And it's like, actually, that's instructions on how to escape slavery <laughs> through the river or whatever. Like, <laughs> And I mean, uh, look, this is important information because this seriously. is happening. This yeah. is happening. When we look at like textbooks now mm-hmm. where they're trying to change slavery to like involuntary employment and I, stuff like that. Seriously. And make it sound like people were having a better time than they were. Because guess mm-hmm. what? They weren't having any good time. No. Or that they were treated better than they were. Right. Or even that if they were treated well, it justified the whole system of slavery, uh, right. which it doesn't. Right. I don't care how well and nice you were. Yeah. You know, it does. you owned another person. That's totally crazy. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But in uh, Bert and George's publicity photos, they were always like the opposite of white people expected. Mm-hmm. They were immaculate and well-dressed. And this underlined the differences between the caricatures of black men that people saw on stage and they themselves as the real thing. Yeah. They're like, what you're seeing ain't even right. when I'm doing it. That ain't the truth. This yeah. is the truth. I'm a classy motherfucker. That's right. the truth. Right. But even having done this and like making that distinct difference in their marketing materials, they did catch heat from the black community from time to time because some people felt that they were helping to maintain these stereotypes in white people's minds. Mm-hmm. But this also paved the way for more black theater professionals to change the game completely. Right. So it's kind of a, you know, I, I don't know it's a Machiavellian kind of thing. Yeah. Ends and means and all that. But they made a choice and they thought this was the best thing we can do for ourselves and our community. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how it plays out. And it, it seems like it played out well. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases of people having to swallow their teeth so yeah. that they can take a seat at the table and right. make more room for other people yeah. who yeah. maybe hopefully would not have to swallow their teeth as much and exactly. so on and so forth. Right. It's like sacrificing for the progress. I'm a very impatient person mm-hmm. when it comes to like social change. I am definitely I am definitely like always screaming at the news like oh, why, yeah. 
but that, why does it take so long? Just do it now. Just tomorrow, <laughs> have it be different. It's not hard. And I believe that mm-hmm. it's not. But at the same time, I've also had to recognize the value of incremental change. Right. And uh, the, ugh, I don't even want to say necessity because I really still don't think it is necessary. But um, it has been in the past. You've seen incremental change work. Mm-hmm. So sometimes... Right. Uh, you just like, well, okay, well, let's get a little done and then we'll get a little more done and then a little more and eventually we'll have something finished. I know, right? But it's like, it's one of those things where you're like, people take a long time to change. Yeah. And then systems take even longer to change because right. they're full of people who take a long time to change. <sighs> so it's like, you know, it's just a pile of, of time yeah. on top of time and slowness on top of slowness. I know. I just have, you And know. does it ever get finished either? Because every time... You know, you get somewhere, you're like, great, that's where I wanted to get. And it's still not far enough. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, in realizing that I was in a horrible situation, now that I'm out of it, I realize that that was stacked underneath 10 other horrible, horrible situations. Yes. Yeah. You just had to deal with the first horrible thing. Right. And then move like, on oh, to the next good. Thing. I'm not enslaved anymore. Wait a second. I can't open a bank account. You right, know, like, exactly. it's not. <laughs> Right. And during segregation, too, is like so extra annoying because it was like, you're separate but equal. So just go make your own thing. And so black people were like, great, I'll go make my own thing. And then white people were like, I don't like that you have your own thing. Yeah. And they'll go in and like fucking destroy it. Ugh. So it's like, well, what? I thought that's what you said you wanted me to do. I was over God. in my own corner over right. here. And now you're up in my corner. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. We're just dumb. <laughs> White is, people get history it can be very frustrating, <laughs> especially looking at social change. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's take a break. Oh, okay. Let's let's, let's marinate on that a little bit for okay. a second. Come <laughs> yeah. back and get back to this story because otherwise we're going to go off uh, and just be like white people fixing racism on our you're podcast right, you're all right. day we long. Should, we should probably <laughs> dial that back. Yeah, we'll get back to the story right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet, There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready that, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, welcome back to the show, everybody. Okay, so the Burt Williams and George Walker duo was first added to a struggling musical called The Gold Bug in 1896. Mm. But the show closed like pretty much as soon as they were cast, oh, <laughs> maybe man. a week or two later. I wanted to see that. I don't know if you did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't do well. <laughs> I guess it wasn't very good. So yeah, The Gold Bug was consigned to the Broadway trash bin. Uh-huh. But the Williams and Walker Act got really good reviews, their particular section of the show. So they were able to get a gig at another theater for a 36-week run. Damn. That's a good run. That is a really good run. And they were also approached by a tobacco company to pose for advertisements. But the company wanted two women on the poster as well as the two gentlemen. Sure. So George was dating a dancer named Stella at the time. So she came along to the photo shoot and she brought her friend, a beautiful, independent, extremely talented performer named Aida Overton. Now, I I did the research for this episode and I found I found several sources said she started her life as Ada okay. Overton and then changed her name later to Aida. Okay. But they didn't seem to agree on that. So one said it was just a, a typo in the census and her name was always Aida or it was just a mistake. Right. Another said she changed it to match the uh, Haitian goddess of fertility and oh, rainbows. Yeah. yeah. 
Then we saw another thing that said she changed it because another Ada joined the the crew right. or joined the cast, so she wanted to be. She had distinctive. to add an I into her name to make it different. Yeah, right. So I'm I'm not sure the true story because mm-hmm. again these sources don't agree. So I'm just gonna call her Aida Overton right throughout the episode, and which means I'm gonna be singing Aida in my head Aida. the whole time because. That's not a song from Aida. I don't know what you just said. I don't. I've never seen Aida. So. Oh, it's so good. Sorry, First of all, not a musical theater. Problem. I mean, you know, it's Elton John's musical about uh, slaves in Egypt. So take that right. for what it is. Nubians? But it's it's it, you know what the thing about Aida? It's my favorite Elton John album because oh, okay. that whole show is just straight up Elton John music, <laughs> and it's great. Yes. And I they should have. I I would love to see it with an Egyptian cast and not Adam Pascal. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> but I definitely played that soundtrack to death in high yeah. school. And then I saw it at the Fox. It was good. Okay. It wasn't great, but it was good. All right. I guess I should listen. It is it is an iconic musical. I it just, is. I'm not a big musicals person, so I never really and got into it. But it's an Atlanta staple, technically, because they premiered it here before it went to Broadway. Oh. And um, they had this big mechanical moving pyramid that, that moved around cool. the stage that was apparently constantly breaking down. That sounds <laughs> so about right. So they would have to do whole performances without it <laughs> or with it stationary. Anyway, I'm going. I'm getting into Aida. Yeah, that's not stuff. what this is about. Unnecessary. But Aida Overton. Different Aida. <laughs> <laughs> so Aida Overton was born in New York on Valentine's Day. And the Library of Congress says she, quote, was a child who seemed to have danced before she walked. Cool. So her parents got her into musical training early, and she joined her first black touring group at the age of 15. And a few years later, she joined Black Patty's Troubadours, which was a troupe owned and operated by Matilda Ciceretta Joyner-Jones. Now, Ciceretta Jones was a soprano who was called the Black Patty as a reference to a famous Italian opera singer named Adelina Patti. And she had a major impact on Aida because she was... Why wasn't Adelina Patti the Italian Ciceretta? Well, you know why. Well, yeah. You know why. I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know why. I don't know if maybe Adelino came first. Well, I have probably. no idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But you know why. Still. So anyway, Ciceretta Jones had a major impact on Aida because she was a black woman who owned her own company. She sang at the White House for President Benjamin Harrison. Oh. And she was the highest paid black entertainer of her time. Cool. So Aida was definitely like, let me take some notes. Yeah. But right before this tobacco ad thing came up, Aida had a bad experience when the management and the performers kind of went head to head over some pay disputes. Oh. And Aida was just not like she was not trying to get into all that. She okay. was not trying to get into some arguments. She said, no more drama in my life like Mary J. Blige. And she decided <laughs> to retire from the stage for good. Wow. OK. So when she accepted this cigarette ad gig, she figured it's just a one time job. She yeah. Post with some photos, get her cash, move on. She, she says, this is a. She says, I'll do one more job. <laughs> and that's it. She's like, oh, Danny Ocean. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> She's like, this is, I'm get, getting out of the game for good after this. Mm-hmm. This will be enough to retire on. Trust Go me. Go move to Tahiti. I'll move on to something completely different. <laughs> well, Bert and George had a different idea because they had been looking for a hook for their vaudeville act. And they thought they found one. It's called the Cakewalk Dance. Mm. Now, the Cakewalk has its roots in West African tribal traditions, according to Camille Forbes. But in America, it was inextricably linked with slavery. Enslaved people would dress up in their finest clothing 
and do this partnered dance. And then the funniest or most impressive or amazing or accomplished moves would win the prize, which was a cake. Be the question is, who takes the cake? Oh, who takes the cake? Interesting, right? I never knew where where that came from. from, Okay. Who takes the cake? Oh, all right. Now, usually these dances would be judged by their enslavers, but it quickly evolved into a satire of the enslavers, although they probably didn't pick up on it. The dancers would mimic all this fussy bowing and curtsying and all the overly formal and poised movements of the white dances like the waltz or the minuet, mm-hmm. really just making fun of all this properness. Yeah. Now, white entertainers in their minstrel shows almost always included a similar dance to a cakewalk. that They called it a walkabout or a strut. And they were usually a big feature in the show. So George and Bert knew that they should add one to their act, too. And there's a real sublime irony here that Camille Forbes <laughs> talks about in introducing Burt Williams. She said, quote, the dance thereby became the performance of white entertainers in blackface who imitated a black dance created to lampoon whites. <laughs> By the time Williams and Walker performed it, the irony was even further heightened or deepened as these black performers now performed a dance imitating whites who mocked blacks who satirized white's pretentious and fussy <laughs> mannerisms. Uh, so it's like you copy me. Fun of who? <laughs> you copy me. Now I'm, I'm going to copy, copy you. you. Now I'm going to copy the copy. And then you copy the copy the copy. Uh-huh. And then, but your copy's better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mocking what you stole from me. I stole from you. You stole back from me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm making fun of you I'm for it. I'm making fun of you. It's pretty great. And it's so, it's just, th- that shit made me laugh so hard. Uh-huh. But it was like, we're making, oh, let's make fun of black people. It turns out they're making fun of us the whole time. But we didn't know that. Because <laughs> 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 like, again, that's superiority. They just could never assume. Right. I think they just couldn't put it in their minds that enslaved people would have an opinion about them or sure. be able to, I don't know, th- think of them in a satirical way or, or whatever. Like they just wouldn't be able to see see that irony yeah um but it was the white people who didn't see it you know (laughs) yeah right right (laughs) anyway so george went to ask aida overton to join williams and walker and she said no (laughs) i already told you i'm done (laughs) she said that was my last job (laughs) that was it we robbed the bellagio and now i'm out (laughs) i'm out for good So George actually had to visit her several times with different proposals and Uh really persist um, before she finally agreed to join. And it would be the best decision of George's life. Nice. We'll find out why right after this break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC 
was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet, There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, so the inclusion of two women in the Williams and Walker Act Mm -hmm. would set them apart all by itself. But Aida was something I cannot stress this enough. Mm -hmm. She would quickly become their leading choreographer, and she had a star power that just held audiences spellbound. Oh, you can't fake that. Could not get enough of her. Yeah. You You got it or you don't. Exactly. And I'm sure George thought, because he was a pretty savvy producer, and he was like, people want to look at you. Yeah. And that's just the truth. Yeah. And if you have that, you can be even not very talented and still have a good career. Right. But like, she was also incredibly talented. 
Uh, she's also beautiful. She's gorgeous. I may say. Gorgeous person. We've been reading this whole story, and this is the first time I, I've Googled her, and she is st- I, stunning. I'm, I don't know what the word is. Yeah. Yeah. I, she's I'm, very beautiful. I want to watch whatever she's doing. In one of her pictures, she looks a lot like, I want to say Zazie Beats. Right, yeah. I yeah, don't yeah. know how to pronounce her name. I know it's wrong, but well, she's amazing. I think it's I think it's Zazie because she was Zazie? saying it's not Zazie. I think it's just Bates. Bates. Beat Bait Beat Bait Bates. There's a it's Bates? I heard her say it. Yeah. Oh my god. Well she's awesome. I'm making and it worse. she might she might do it. Or Journey Smollett, I know can sing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe she would be a good choice. I don't know. Somebody make this movie and you tell me who should play her. Seriously. <laughs> because I will watch it. Now Camille Forbes writes, quote Aida in particular made a difference that not only equaled great success for Williams and Walker, but also created a national craze for the cakewalk. Although Williams and Walker were not the cakewalk's innovators, by the time they were done popularizing it, their names would be forever linked with the dance. Mm. Now, the first time they performed the cakewalk as part of their vaudeville act, it was just Stella and Aida on stage with George and Bert. Okay. But within a month, they had added dozens of dancers to the bill. Uh-huh. Awesome. Um, they had incredible moves. Sometimes they would bend over backwards until their heads almost touched the floor. Oh, my God. Um, sometimes they would perform with buckets of water on their heads and what? dance ecstatically and energetically without spilling a single drop. Oh, my God. Like, it was just insane stunts. You know, people were like, yeah. I can't believe what I'm looking at. And through 1898, they toured their act throughout the nation with the Cakewalk as their big showstopper. Mm -hmm. They received incredible acclaim, and they rose to the top of the vaudeville scene. Aida was even being invited by white society elites to teach them to cakewalk in private lessons, which helped maintain its popularity. Okay. She even wrote an article about it to like show, tell people how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So people were obsessed; like they were really interested. Amazing. So by 1898, they were established and they were successful. And George and Bert decided that they were going to rent an elegant apartment on 53rd Street in New York City. And this was in the middle of what was called Black Bohemia. And they wanted to make this the central gathering place for any black man who wanted to make a career in theater. And George Walker wrote that, quote, by having these men around, we had the opportunity to study the musical and theatrical ability of the most talented members of our race. He's like, you know what? I need the most talented black people there is. How about I just throw open my doors and welcome them to yeah, me and they're they'll like, come to me? I mean, having a good central hangout spot is beneficial for any artistic community, you know, where people just show up and exchange ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about the factory. Yeah. I'm thinking about a ton of different Broadway locations, Absolutely. just the East Village in general, you know, True. like. And you like, yeah, you meet people to collaborate with and y'all come up with things and you work on stuff and just having the fellowship, period. Even if you do no work together, it's just nice to hang out with people like like a fringe festival, you know, like that might be a good place for artists to convene. Mm -hmm. If only someone I knew organized and operated (laughs) one of those, (laughs) I would marry her in a second. Um. I, although I want to ask, they specifically say men here. They were not inviting to women performers. I didn't see that they did particularly. Yeah. Um, things were just so gendered at this time right, that right. I think if you had a an organization, it was a fraternal organization. It was a men's group. It was bu- business was for men. So what I think so. Different, it's not that different, but like the image of theater 
Yeah. You know, and you're thinking of like all these, oh, we're men and we hang around and we smoke cigars and we talk <laughs> about what Broadway performance we're going to do next week. Right. You know? Yeah. But, um, you know, that's so opposite of the image I grew up with about what theater is. Mm-hmm. But then you get into theater and you're like, it's still oh, male dominated. <laughs> a lot so. of performing and arts. white dominated. Yeah. Very yeah, true. Definitely. All right. So at this time, black acts were only given a single slot on a vaudeville bill. Now, this was meant to limit black entertainers influence Mm -hmm. and also to limit the number of black people in the audience as well. Yeah. Stated goal, by the way, like this. Uh, Oh, yeah. This is the point. (laughs) It wasn't just like, oh, we figured out their the mm-hmm. real reasons for doing it. No, they, they were open about yeah, that. Yeah, it was a feature, not a Wow, <laughs> wow. Now, George and Bert knew that to build a real career, they would need to put up their own really big show. Really big show. And thanks to this meeting place that they'd created, they were in the best company possible to form their own production team, which they called the Williams and Walker Company. And they started producing full-length musicals. Ow! Some of their frequent collaborators were composer Will Marion Cook or playwright Jesse A. Shipp and the poet and lyricist Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And Aida was their leading choreographer. Yeah. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I have a little bit of a connection with. Oh, yeah. Because in my high school, we actually performed his poem, We Wear the Mask. No kidding. Uh, we studied it and we we. Uh, like put it up as part of one of our shows that we oh, did. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, he's it was uh, it was cool to learn a little bit more about him. He's not much in this episode because we had too much to go over. But right. he's an interesting guy. Look him up. All right. Now George was the business savvy spokesman type in this group, mm-hmm. and both he and Bert insisted that they were only going to produce quality theater, elaborate sets, big fancy props, costumes, and lighting on par with the white theaters. That's right. They wanted to elevate the professionalism of black theater and encourage black people to pursue theatrical careers. They also paid good salaries to their artists and their stagehands. That's right. Um, Now, look at that. We're talking about an abstract support of a place to gather together and like very like encouraging like we can do better we can do best we don't have to do these stereotypes you right. know it's kind of an abstract support in that but it was paired up with a very real solid financial support Ugh. of money good so wages important. which you need both so important you gotta have both it's been so hard there's been a, a real um it's been a real reckoning and i feel like in atlanta mm-hmm. at least in the last few years um, where we've been saying, look, you have to pay people. That's right. I know you're a low budget theater company, but you got to find it. Otherwise, you're not a low budget theater company. Other, you know, like you're not a company. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, there's like we had a theater company for, yeah. for you know, still technically, and and we did shows for uh, well over a decade. Um, you know, mostly not paying ourselves mm-hmm. at all. It was just like we take our $10 ticket sales, we put them back in the account, and we use that to paint the sets next time. Yeah. Um, and we all knew that going into it. And there wasn't like one person in charge getting paid while no one else did or anything like right, that. Right. Um, but uh, and, and that's OK. I know a lot of artists are like, look, there's still projects you do for the love. Sure, sure. Or like to get yourself established or meet the right folks or whatever. There's plenty of reasons to work for free. It's just that people will do it to exploit you. Exactly. And they're like, your talent is the reason I'm making money. Right. So it was people kind of going, well, then my talent is worth money. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, in the New York age, which was one of the most prominent black newspapers of its time, 
They would later call George Walker, quote, the commander in chief of the black theatrical forces. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Their first full length show was called the Senegambian Carnival. Um, it's described in the book Spread and Rhythm Around Black Popular Songwriters from 1890 to 1930 as being about George's dandy character uh-huh. trying to con Bert's character out of some gold that Bert's character had found in Alaska. Okay. But that plot, quote, served mainly as a clothesline to hang song and dance numbers on. Sure. So they hadn't quite got to like a story, a, you know, a full story. Yeah. It was more of a through line. Yeah. Through line. Hey, an excuse for us to spectacle you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it toured successfully for a few months in Boston, D.C., and Cincinnati. And during this tour, Bert started courting a widowed actress eight years older than him named Lottie Thompson. Oh, Lottie Da. Lottie Dottie Da. <laughs> In 1899, he surprised George by announcing that he had married Lottie in a private ceremony. And I wonder if George was like, man, I want to come. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm your friend. Uh, Bert and Lottie would stay together for the rest of Bert's life. Um, they never had any children of their own, but they did adopt and raise three of Lottie's nieces. Oh, cool. And they opened their home to orphans and foster children as nice. well. So just like sweet romance between these two. Yes. But Bert was not the only one hit with Cupid's arrow because George and Aida had been falling in love during their two years performing together. Uh And in June 1899, they got married when she was 19 and he was 26. And Aida became Aida Overton Walker, which is the name she's best known as. Now, their next show was called Sons of Ham. (laughs) And this was a farce about two bums who get mistaken for twin heirs to a fortune. That, according to an article by Lily Johnson on Dartmouth.edu, was written as just a general plot outline so Bert and George could ad lib and improvise throughout. Love it. They're just like, oh, we're two bums who are now rich. Uh huh. Hijinks and What's going to happen? Yeah. yeah. Now give me an emotion and a fruit, and I'm going to do a <laughs> we'll bit. go. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty fun. Oh, yeah. I just, the first thing that popped into my head was trading places. Mm. I know that's a little different. Yeah. But, uh, you know, making bums rich and seeing what they do with it is a. A classic story. I also wonder if they joked a little about the twins thing. Uh-huh. Because they were not meant to be related. And I don't think their characters were related. Uh-huh. So I wonder if they had any any humor in that of like, y'all think we look alike? Oh, yeah, that's funny. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah we're twins. Give us this money or whatever. <laughs> that's good. I don't know. Unfortunately, there's no book to read of it or anything. But it's, it's I like to think that they had a good moment with that. <laughs> a good little bit with that. Now... Bert and George had a friend in the audience who would write down jokes and slapstick that that worked, that mm-hmm. hit. That's brilliant. Ugh. And that helped Williams and Walker learn what their audiences liked. And that helped them keep what worked and lose what didn't mm-hmm. in their shows. Brilliant. Because you so can't good. always tell. Sometimes you're on stage mm-hmm. and you're like, man, they are not responding at all right now. And then you talk to someone who was in the audience later and they're like, I was dying Dying. we were all laughing our asses off Mm -hmm. you can't always get it so that's very clever it is and it's one of the beauties of theater to be Uh honest because you're doing the show over and over and over again right and they're like so let's change it let's fix it i mean we'll put it up and then what doesn't work don't do it tomorrow you know what i mean it's very uh stand-up yeah i hear i was just listening to the pat oswald talk about that he's like you know you'll do your show and you'll write down what works he said he was talking about taping a special Mm -hmm. he was like i taped this special and of course the five times after that that i did this show was so much better yeah of and course. you know you always wish that like i mean that's just true of live performance all the time you want to keep changing it yeah. because you're always finding good things that work and 
things yeah. that didn't. As long yeah. as you keep working on it, it'll always get better. Yep. Well. Well. If you're well, <laughs> if you do it right, uh, in theory, <laughs> right, right. In addition to cutting out what didn't work, they also cut all the black stereotypical characters. They were well known to vaudeville audiences. We already know that Bert and George hated those kind of characters from the start, and they worked to subvert the stereotypes of black men on stage. And also, Aida totally refused to play stereotypes. Mm -hmm. She said she would only portray black women as dignified and well-rounded. Good for her, putting her fish. She's like, I know That's what right. I'm worth. Yeah. And it's more than this. Mm -hmm. And well, and and it was so much about the culture. You yeah, know, it, exactly. It, yeah. Unfortunately, if you're from a marginalized population, you don't everything you do is not just you. It, right, you're representing right. everybody else, which is an extra weight that is not shouldn't be there. Right. But it's just the, the fact of the matter. And yep. Steve really felt and all of all three of them really felt like we can use we're right in front of a bunch of white people all mm -hmm. the time. We can use this yeah. to help every black person in the nation. Yeah. And so they really felt they really felt like they could make some changes. I'll borrow a story I just heard uh Carrie Washington mm -hmm. give on on uh our friends Jason and Sean and Will's podcast, Smartless. Besties. Friends of the show. Um <laughs> she was on that and she said that when she got scandal, mm -hmm. uh when she was cast on scandal, she was the first um black woman in a leading role on a on an hour long drama, she was like, I, I know that if I don't do this right, it'll be another 40 years before this happens again. Wow. And I was like, damn, that is so much extra weight to have to carry. Yeah. That's can, outrageous. Can can you imagine? I, I can't I'm like blown away that it took that long for there to be a leading actress in a hour long drama. Right. That it was just scandal, which is right. pretty recent. Right. That's wild. Uh, but it's true. It's just like a female director. You know, you're right. like, well, if this movie is amazing, people will say it's because of some guy. And if it's bad, they'll say it's because of me. Wow. And no one will give a movie to a woman ever again. We tried that once. It didn't work. Exactly. I'm yeah. like, how many bad movies have men made? And they get a million other chances. Well, so. you know, we've all made bad movies now and then. <laughs> yeah, now and then. You know what you need next time? Probably more money. That'll <laughs> exactly. help. That'll fix it. <laughs> so... All that being said, they decided they were going to move away from their minstrel roots into fuller, more human comedy styles. Yeah. They're really realizing their dreams. Yeah. You know, they're getting there. Now, Aida got a ton of fame during this show with her rendition of a song called Hannah from Savannah. And she brought this song up to an instant hit. And she got national attention for her voice and her graceful dance mastery. Mm. Plus, Bert's rendition of a song, Good Morning Carrie, made that one of the biggest hits of 1901. And that was covered by several artists. So multiple nationwide hit songs mm -hmm. came out of this show. Yeah. Still, the world had its way of reminding them that they were second-class citizens in America. The New Yorker says that back when they were on the minstrel circuit, both Bert and George barely escaped a Colorado mining camp where they were performing when they were accused of being more well-dressed than a black man had the right to be. Mm. And they were stripped of their clothing by this mob. Sounds like jealousy because they're in a uh, mining right. camp. So right. I'm assuming the miners maybe didn't yeah. have nice clothes. And maybe they so. were like, why do you have something nice and I don't? Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. Right. And racism. And racism. Right. Which got some jealousy in it, I think. Oh, definitely. In August of 1900, all these 
hysterical rumors started spreading around New York that a white detective had been shot by a black man. This caused a riot. And George did not know about this, and he got caught up in it and was yanked off of a streetcar and beaten by a white mob. Just so, still, like, no matter their fame levels or mm-hmm. anything like that, they're still being, like we said, reminded constantly, yeah. don't forget where a lot of people in this country want you to be. Right. And it's like, on stage, you're a god, but right. off stage, you're just another black guy to yeah. me, and I don't care. Yeah. It's like, ugh. A Sons of Ham ran for about 16 performances. They did eight in 1900 and eight in 1901. But meanwhile, the team of Williams and Walker were hard at work on their next show in Dahomey, where their characters are con men who travel to the African country of Dahomey to colonize it along with a group of poor black people. And this was the first full-length show to open at an indoor venue on Broadway entirely written, produced, and performed by black people. What? And there's a great story where George Walker said that he was playing to an East Side audience and he was like singing a song and he said, one day I'll sing this on Broadway. And they all laughed. And like a month later, they were on Broadway. Oh, amazing. So I love that. Yes. Amazing. He he manifested it. Uh Uh-huh. That's so cool. (laughs) Even cooler than that, it was a major hit. Anne Charters, in her book, Nobody, the Story of Burt Williams, wrote that critics noted that, quote, all Burt Williams had to do was look at the audience and it went into spasms promptly. Which makes me think of how SNL apparently now these days will write a sketch Uh and they'll just go, Keenan, cut to Keenan. Keenan reacts. (laughs) Like Keenan Thompson, whatever. So good he's at that. He's great. I mean, all he has to do is make a little face One and face you die. One face man, and I'm on the floor. So good. He's got Burt Williams energy. But to be fair, I was, I, I've been a lifelong Keenan fan because my favorite show as a kid was All That. I never saw All oh That. Oh my God. And his bit about, his bit as like the Frenchman in the bathtub doing, it was everyday French with Pierre as Cargot. <laughs> he just read the most ridiculous. He'd be like, he'd be like, oh, I'm doing to teach you French. Today we learned to say what is this fish doing in my mayonnaise jar? Oh, and then he was <laughs> very useful. He would say in French first and then reveal what the ridiculous oh, sure, phrase yeah. was and then do his ho, 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 ho. comedy legend. Oh, I will God, forever so be a fan. Well, anyway, Burt Williams was getting praised for his comedy stylings and Aida became known as the queen of the cakewalk. Oh. One vaudeville performer, Tom Fletcher, wrote in his autobiography that she was a dancer, quote, who could do almost anything. And no matter whether it was a buck and wing, cakewalk, or even some form of grotesque dancing, she lent the performance a neat gracefulness of movement, which was unsurpassed by anyone. Awesome. Tom Fletcher, by the way, was a black vaudeville performer, and he wrote his autobiography, 100 Years of the Negro in Show Business. It was published in 1954. It's like the only eyewitness account of black performers at the turn of the century. And apparently it's used as a source by like most theater historians. Yeah. So that's a book I'd like to read. Oh, it's awesome. (laughs) Tom Fletcher, ladies and gents. In Dahomey played for 53 performances on Broadway. That's pretty good. Yeah. Before touring throughout England and Scotland, where they were so popular, they ended up doing a command performance for the King and Queen of England at Buckingham Palace for Edward VIII's ninth birthday. Wow. Edward VIII would later go on to abdicate the crown. Whoops. To marry a divorcee and also become a fascist. 
So this right. is kind of funny. <laughs> it's like he's became a big white supremacist, but for his ninth birthday, they were like, "Let's watch In Dahomey." Wow. <laughs> I wish it had done more for him. Yeah, <laughs> his mindset. Yeah. So this was like the most popular musical in London. It even became the first black musical to have its score published in in the UK. That is, it was still not published in the US because oh, we're still on our bullshit. And aristocrats there also paid Aida to teach them private lessons in the cakewalk like she was doing in the U.S. Library of Congress writes, quote, In the cakewalk, Williams and Walker had found a quintessential black modernist expression, a high art worthy of being performed before royalty for the white elite and on the concert stage. Aida Overton Walker provided the dance with new gloss converting it from its past in lower-class black dance halls that referenced the old slave culture to being an icon of the modern concert hall. Wow. And after a year, they returned to America and went on a 40-week tour across the United States. And with this massive, massive hit, I mean, worldwide hit, everyone involved became household names. So cool. That includes George Walker, Burt Williams, Ida Overton Walker, Will Marion Cook, yeah. Jesse Ship, yes. and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Like everyone involved were famous. Oh, it's so great. So awesome. It's just so cool to see how how they did that incremental change, right? Yeah. They started off in minstrel shows. They were like, we'll do your stupid thing. Now we'll do our vaudeville show where we still do your stupid thing, but a little less stupidly. Right, right. And then now we're doing our own musicals and we're just not going to do your stupid thing at all. Yeah. We're just going to show black people and black culture. And you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. And they fucking did because it was so good. Ah, it's so cool. Now, Lily Johnson on Dartmouth.edu writes that their success with In Dahomey helped George and Bert, quote, develop a formula for their musicals, fanciful locations, big chorus numbers featuring Aida Overton Walker in a leading role, and a whole evening of laughs before the clowning hard luck simpleton Williams finally got wise to the fast talking dandy Walker. <laughs> and I love that they were like, okay, listen, we want to we want to be successful. Aida has to have a solo. Aida has yeah. to be yeah. one of the main. She is the main attraction. Yeah. So we've got to put her all over this bitch. Of course. And I love that. You don't put Michael Jordan in a movie and he doesn't play basketball. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, true. <laughs> you don't put uh, so you don't put Ryan Gosling in something and he doesn't take his shirt off. Does he not? Did he take his shirt off in Gray Man? I feel like he always gets his shirt off at some point. Yeah, yeah. he got shot and they like bandaged him up. Oh, I guess so. You know, they always do that. They, it's true. It's for us. Yeah, it's for you. <laughs> it's for all of us. I guess no, it's, it's for, for everybody. all of us. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. That's I was never been never been a big Ryan Gosling fan. But this isn't about him. No, it's not. <laughs> Way to make this great episode about black people about a white guy. Look, <laughs> one throwaway reference to Ryan Gosling. America's sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, I love, in my mind, Aida teaching the cakewalk dance to all these rich white aristocrats mm -hmm. is just like, it's, what am I picturing? I'm seeing like somebody teaching a bunch of rich white people, the Superman or something. Oh my God. You know, at a Soldier wedding. And it's just like so embarrassing. And she has to be like, no, you're doing a great job. <laughs> and they look ridiculous. Yes. I don't know if it was that, but that's what it is in my mind. I thought about like TikTok dances. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's so many TikTok dances that come from black creators. And they have right. these amazing, sharp, 
really dope choreography. Uh-huh. And then you'll see, I think people were making fun of like Addison Ray on Jimmy Fallon because she came on to teach him some of these TikTok and like, dances. And she was like, she like, so, marks it. like not good. Yeah, she like, barely it does as, it. It was barely as good. If you see them side by side, you're like, what is the comparison? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it was just, it was like, I was just picturing these, they're bending over backwards with their heads touching the ground. You know, I know white person did that. Like, right. you know, so they must have been doing a very <laughs> lame version of it in comparison. <laughs> oh, Gerald, did I, did my head touch the ground yet? Ooh. Oh, very good, dear. <laughs> you look just like Ada Overton Walker. <laughs> in my childhood, they would play musical chairs. Uh-huh. And whoever won, they won a cake, whoever won. Uh-huh. And they just called it cakewalk. Oh, okay. So that's what I thought was a cakewalk for gotcha. a long time. And then, yeah, I did this episode and I was like, oh, that's not what a cakewalk is. <laughs> Apparently it has its roots in American slavery. Why didn't anyone <laughs> tell me that when I was a child? Right. I think it's so interesting that this elaborate dance where people are bending over backwards, touching their heads on the ground or having buckets of water on their head and not spilling any mm-hmm. is called a cakewalk. And now a cakewalk means something easy. Easy, yes. Right? That's, yeah. I guess that's deliberately ironic. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe the etymology there. Well, and I will say they talked a lot about how, like, Bert and George had some incredible moves, too, where, I mean, they, they, they were, like, most of these reviews are from white people. So right. they're like, he, he'll just pop his elbow out and his legs will go in opposite directions and I just don't even know how he's doing this, you know. <laughs> how did your body move like that? And they right. just couldn't believe it. Um, but they made it look so easy. Yeah. They're like, it just looks so, so simple. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know how you're doing it, but you're making it look really easy. So I wonder if, yeah, there's an added irony of like, it's a cakewalk, but it's actually kind of hard. This you have to be... make it look easy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there's got to be something there about sort of being detached from white culture like so much of white performance at the time Mm -hmm. is based in its own history like i have to be building on this of the past or i have to even be reforming what we've already done Mm -hmm. or or improving what we've already you know there's rules and things i have to follow and these guys come in and they're like i don't need to do it i'm gonna try something different entirely different Mm -hmm. a new styles that that break convention because i'm not living in the same conventions as you Mm -hmm. and that's why they're shows are able to be so impressive, especially to white people who are like, well, I've never even considered something different than what I'm used to before. Right. And it blows their minds. Yeah. And then they have, you know, they have so many, uh, so much incentive to put themselves fully into this work and really create something impressive mm-hmm. that's going to stand out and and earn them, you know, the recognition and the money that they deserve for it. So it it just... I, f- I feel like you can see the inherent drive that makes these shows so incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're putting 10 times the amount of effort and heart. Right. And passion. Right. Because, I mean, partly because they have to. Yeah. And partly because if they don't do it, who's going to do it? Uh-huh. You know, like no one, el- no one else is trying to put a bunch of black shows up on Broadway but right. me. So let me do this. Right. And do it to the best of my ability, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> pretty damn good. Yeah. So you're going to be blown away by me. Uh-huh. You know, I just think they're just so cool. I <laughs> I love them. And I love seeing how their little steps, you know, they really I don't know if they really had like a master plan or anything, but you can see their little steps and how they kept continuing. Like every show they would push a little bit more yeah. and a little bit more right. against what everyone wanted to see or what they thought they wanted to see because they always loved what they were given. Yeah. So even if it was like 
you know, even if it was a show making fun of white people, white people liked uh-huh. it. You know, they're just <laughs> like, I, I love it. Whatever you want to show me, I'm into it, you know? I guess that's a question I have, too. Was their audience perpetually predominantly white? It depended on the venue because okay. the venues were all segregated, of yeah, course. Okay. So early on, they performed only for black audiences. Uh-huh. And then when they would get, they would be like the George, uh, sorry, Williams and Walker would be like the only black act on a vaudeville bill. Right. And that would be for white audiences. Mm-hmm. In in England and Scotland, it was a lot of white people. You know, it, it just kind of right. depended right. on the theaters. But they did play for white audiences which is pretty impressive yeah well and i wonder how different those shows were too i'm gonna be like all right we can we don't have to worry about (laughs) the white people in the audience for this show so we can have a little more fun or something maybe i do wonder that would make sense right if you were if you were in a room that felt really safe yeah uh, yeah i'm sure you you pushed the boundaries more made different jokes but yeah, I guess that brings us to the end of part one does, yeah. of our episode. Because yeah. at this point, you know, we got Williams and Walker. They're they're Top they can the only game. go up. Right. They can only go up from here. Right. They're already like blowing people's minds and they have more to give. Yes. Even more to give. So we will tackle the rest of their career highs and 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 lows. Mm. Tragic lows. Mm-hmm. Um in our next episode. And I really hope that you enjoyed this. This part, because I, I'm i just in love with all of them. Yeah. And I want a movie so badly. I'm already trying to, like, come up with a budget to produce a play about them or something. <laughs> because here's, I don't understand why there's not a million projects about them. They're I so mean, cool. Look, we're ha- I'm, we're in a bit of a fight with HBO Max right now. Okay. Because they're making some insane decisions. <laughs> um, But I am telling, we need so badly a ridiculous romance TV show at this point. Because I'm just like so many of these episodes and it's not this is not us. This is not like because of our skills or anything like that. It's just the stories we're digging up that have gone largely untold uh, that just should absolutely be at minimum movies. And some of them need 19 seasons. Six seasons. (laughs) I mean, full on supernatural length Mm -hmm. TV shows. Amazing. (laughs) About. Maximilian and Carlotta. <laughs> uh, well, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> right. But it's true. I, there's so many of them that I'm like, I, I don't even need to be in it. You know what I mean? Right. As an actor, of course, I'd love to be in it. But yeah, I don't sure. need to be. Well, we'll I be just, producers. We can do whatever we, we want. We can do whatever we want. We'll, yeah. we'll have a cameo. We'll pop you'll, in. You'll get the news with Diana Banks as Aida Overton Walker. Uh, no. Like, no. No, 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 no. I would never do that. <laughs> no, this is not the James Franco hour. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you believe? Well, anyway. Let's yeah, we that. Don't but yes, I hope that you loved. If you have heard of Aida Overton Walker, George Walker, or Burt Williams already, mm-hmm. love to hear from you. And especially if we got anything wrong, obviously, <laughs> love to hear that. Would love to learn more about them. We haven't had a corrections corner in some time. That's Thank you very true. much. That's true. I'm sitting on one, but that's just because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. Yeah, exactly. No, because <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll fit into another episode. Oh, later. okay, but, okay, okay. Um, but yeah. We haven't, so I'm very happy about that. But if yeah. there's anything in here, obviously, please, you know, reach out I'd and love let to us hear know. It. Yeah. But if you've never heard of them, I hope that you fell in love with them the way that I did yeah. and are on edge of your seat for the end of their, for the second part of their story because yeah. it's just as awesome and fascinating. And Aida is just the Beyonce of her time. <laughs> and she deserves many a documentary. Yeah, for real. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this. 
Um, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Please reach out to us. We love to hear from you guys. Our email is ridicromance at gmail.com. That's right. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. I am at, oh, great. It's Eli. And I'm at Diana Might. Boom. And the show is at Ridic Romance. Yeah. And drop us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And we cannot wait for part two. So come back and hear the rest. Yeah. We'll catch you all then. Love you. Bye. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare it's like the police knew who he was before they got here from iheart podcasts the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 